trauma-informed mindfulness can give people the opportunity to decide for themselves what it means to live a good life and how they want to go about doing that. Hey you, you're listening to Not Yet, the podcast about our relationships and how they're the keys to our self-discovery. I'm your host, Paige Polk. I'm a community builder and Emmy award-winning digital media artist, channeling the powers of introspection. You're in the right place if you're mindful about the world you create and believe it's possible for us all to belong. I'm so grateful you're here. Now let's start the show. Welcome back to the Not Yet Podcast. (laughs) It is so wonderful for you to be here. I'm so grateful you're here. And I have a very special guest named Kirit Randawa. Hello, Kirit. Hi. Hi, Paige. (laughs) Thank you for having me on here. Thank you for being here. For those of you who are not familiar with her work, Garrett is a New York City-based meditation instructor and inspired student of Tibetan Buddhism. Her personal journey and deep course of study has led her to craft a pathway to guide others in personal development, conscious exploration, transformational practices, and life shifts. Through her studies at Columbia University and the Nalanda Institute, Garrett merges contemplative training with the field of psychology to identify how these practices can be used as instruments for individual and societal change. Mm. How does it feel to hear that read back to you? <laughs> um, it, it feels uh, restorative, I would say, because I've been feeling a little bit, I'm going through a lot of just transition and experiencing a lot of uh, change in my life. So I think hearing something as clear as my aspiration for why I'm doing what I'm doing is really grounding and restorative. There's something so beautiful about sitting down with yourself and regrounding yourself with your why. Mm Mm-hmm. Because there's so much going on in the world. There's so much energy going everywhere. And it can be really easy to get distracted, uh, especially when you have a strong focus and a strong core in the work that you do. Mm -hmm. And I love that your bio is so clear about why you do what you do. Mm. You know, I think that it's, um, it's really essential to to be clear about why we're doing what we're doing. And I'll speak just to myself why I'm doing what I'm doing, because it's really easy to get confused, to feel really disoriented. And especially in the work of healing and in spaces of a lot of intimacy and vulnerability, things get messy very quickly. And there is a lot of expectation and opinion and sort of, um, just uh, a sort of projected notion of what healing is supposed to look like and what this space is supposed to feel like. So if I'm clear on why I'm doing what I'm doing, that immediately leaves room for the space and the journey to be dynamic. So I'm not so focused on creating the right space initially. I'm focused on being intentional and how I hold the space. And then from there, the space just creates itself. So I think it's um, it's really non-negotiable to doing the work properly. <laughs> I love that 
comparison of creating space versus holding space, especially when we're talking about healing work, we're talking about what we're talking about today is really organizing work. What does it look like when you have a community space and a goal that you're working toward and there's so much that you cannot control? You can't really create (laughs) everything. You have Mm -hmm. to allow Mm-hmm. And hold space for all of that allowing and also insert a little bit of your own you know, creative magic as well. But the real power is being able to experience and allow things to come. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And I think that it's it's sort of like a um, it's a balancing act of knowing when to intervene and to be really assertive and what to do and how to structure things and then when to step back and when to sort of let things unfold. And I think just with time and with practice, it has become increasingly intuitive as to when I perhaps do need to be a little bit more assertive about what's going on in the space um, or when that's actually just not productive or maybe not in service to the greater good of the group. So that's when it's my job to really just take a step back. Well, that is such a juicy intro. (laughs) I love that. Uh, Well, can you tell us the Not Yet community, uh, you know, your bio is really the black and white version of what you do. Um, But can you tell us who is Kirit? Yes. um, Gosh, what a question. Um, Well, I, I first and foremost feel really connected to my Sikh Punjabi heritage. So um, my family is originally from Punjab, which is Northwest India. Um, And I feel very much connected to that culture and that community. And I think that my spiritual roots in the the Sikh the Sikhism faith has really allowed me to explore Buddhism and to begin actually teaching a lot of these Buddhist practices so today I would say she's a, a multitude of different things but really um, working to know herself with greater intimacy and greater compassion and greater humility and inviting other people to do the same by helping them navigate their inner life with more ease so Uh, What the work really looks like in what I do is it's a little less external focus. So it's not so much, uh, okay, what are your goals for work and what are your goals for your relationship? Although that very much is related into the work I do, but it's how does it feel when you're in relationship with this part of your life? And how does it feel when you're getting to know a part of you in this part of your life? So it's very much internally driven, which then we can obviously begin to see the fruits in the world around us, especially in, in different aspects of our lives. So, um, I teach meditation and it's very much inspired by Tibetan Buddhism. I work one-on-one with clients to offer contemplative guidance. And I also work with different groups and organizations and communities to consult and create and hold space to support, support the community in getting to know one another and in getting to know themselves a little bit better. It sounds like your work is very focused on self-awareness. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of self-awareness and being mindful of how you show up Mm -hmm. so that you can navigate the world outside with ease. Right. 
And, you know, I think a key part of that is also recognizing that we all have blind spots and that we will always constantly come into contact with a new piece of insight about who we are and about the way we show up and expecting oneself to arrive at a place where nothing is a surprise or where we're completely aware of all of our tendencies and neuroses is I just think, um, I just don't think that's realistic, but I also think that's unfortunate to have that expectation because the the momentum to live and to see each day is that natural inclination that we have to evolve. And it doesn't have to be so clinical and it doesn't even have to be so spiritual. It just has to be a willingness to come into contact with who we are and grow from that in our own way in our own time. The key word there is a willingness. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) I laugh. I'm laughing. And the reason I'm laughing is not because that is a silly concept because, but because it's such a simple concept and it's so for me personally, that willingness has been a challenge. Like the willingness to acknowledge my blind spots has been a challenge. The willingness to acknowledge that the way that I show up in this world is very different inherently from the way anyone mm-hmm. else in this world shows up. And mm-hmm. any attempts at controlling or or judging the experiences of actions of other people or, or even large entities, organizations, mm-hmm. is, is futile effort. <laughs> it is. It's it's effortful work and um it's work that's the best way to describe it and you know i think that something that i'm really realizing more and more is that it's also very important to balance that work with levity and lightness and to be really clear again coming back to this idea of the why to be really clear about why we want to be self-aware and why we want to be um why we want to develop a commitment to really knowing ourselves intimately because from my experience and I think what I'm seeing all around me now in the wellness space and the clinical space is this um, hyper vigilance on healing and growing and evolving that I actually think is contributing to a heightened state of self self absorption where it's no longer strengthening your connection with the world around you but it's actually alienating you because we then become so hyper aware and so fixated on any potential flaw that we then want to take it to the lab and fix it and dissect it and evolve it and heal it. And, you know, I think there is something beautiful about mess and chaos and loss and love and growth and joy, because that's what it means to be human. It means to make mistakes again and again and again, but to be willing to very gradually take responsibility and learn. So, the key principle I think in this work that I'm noticing that is coming up more and more is to be really dynamic in what it means to be self-aware. Can you say more about the word dynamic and, and what that means for you? I think for me, dynamic is uh, flexible. I think that I'm somebody personally who doesn't struggle with discipline or structure or ritual or routine that just, just due to my, uh, my own upbringing and my own, I think, personality and astrological constitution, if you will, those things come really easy to me. But focusing on balance and focusing on play and focusing on joy has definitely been where my healing is and where 
I've really had to commit to learning what it feels like to let things go and to be without having it be so ritualized and structured. So my personal practice can only really influence the work that I do because I can only teach from my own heart. I can't, I'm sure I could read something and repeat that back, but anybody can read something and really have that land to them. But I can only really teach what I'm personally experiencing and what I'm going through. And I think for me, I've really realized how important it is to be dynamic with what your daily practice looks like. It might be a 30 minute meditation. The next day might be a 10 minute meditation in the bath. It might be, it really just might change. And I think a question that has really helped me remain dynamic in my practice is every time I sit down to do anything, just to ask if this is liberating. If I'm feeling really activated and I ask myself, okay, is it liberating to close my eyes and focus on the breath for 10 minutes? Oftentimes the answer is no. It's mm. actually go outside, don't be alone, be with loved ones, cook good food. That's the liberating response. And then when I feel like I'm able to relax into my nervous system, then I can commit to the breath in a safer way. So that's sort of like a synopsis of, of what I mean um, in terms of being dynamic with one's practice. What are your big three for astrology? Cancer Sun. Capricorn rising and Libra moon. Oh, that's so sweet. It's very emotional. It's a lot of emotions all the time. <laughs> that is so sweet. Um, I got curious when you were saying that routine and consist. You didn't say the word consistency, but I heard consistency comes very naturally to you. Uh, ritual comes very naturally to you. And for you, the process of liberation has been more about bringing in joy and bringing in flexibility. That resonated very strong for me uh, mm. because I also grew up in a very, I, very structured environment. My culture has been very structured. Even the way that my mind naturally works, I'm very good at, you know, I can... I can make a beautiful Google calendar. <laughs> mm. Um, mm. And that has served me very well uh, in that has served me very well in spaces where I felt out of control mm. because at least I could control how long I do this activity or at least I can control when I wake up or at least I can control what my practice looks like. Mm -hmm. And liberation for me has been very similar to what you've described is making space for joy and place and flexibility and trust is the really big word that's coming to me and, mm. and trusting outside of myself. Mm. Oh, that hit home. <laughs> mm. That's a great question though. The, is this liberating? Yeah, a, a good teacher actually, um, I, who had asked me that. I was on retreat and I was having such a bizarre experience. And it was like the fourth or fifth day now on this retreat. And um, I was telling her about this retreat, going into the detail. And I was like, what does this mean? What does this mean? And I, I wanted some 
revelatory response from her that this is what this meant. And she just asked me, you know, is it liberating to constantly analyze your meditations? And I was like, no. And she was like, okay, the session is over. <laughs> this is it. And I was like, okay, wow. And it just struck me so deeply because I realized how most things I was doing weren't actually very liberating. Sure, it was the appropriate thing to do when I checked up the boxes and everybody around me was like, that looks great. But I just felt even more vigilant, even more restricted, even more restrained. And I thought, hmm, this isn't, I don't know what these saints and these amazing mystics have experienced, but I can't imagine that they were feeling more contracted with, with each you know, evolution that they were going through. I was like, if I'm feeling more contracted, I think I'm doing something a little bit wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking about um, what you mentioned earlier about this trend that you're recognizing in mindfulness spaces and even some spiritual spaces about psychoanalyzing yourself. <laughs> into a hole and the idea of liberation, the idea of freedom, what's really coming to me is that is different for everyone. And that's why that process of self-awareness, that process of getting to know yourself is so important because what is liberatory for you will not be the same thing that is liberatory for your neighbor. Mm. Yeah. And yet another reason why we cannot judge people for their liberatory practices. <laughs> Precisely. And which is why when we have these band-aid movements of meditate this many times a week or day or do this and this it's just um i think it actually will cause more harm than good mm. so i think that there is a little bit of um concern that i have just to see what what the industry as a whole um will look like in a few years when people have committed to fitting into one model of health and wellness and what will happen as a result of that. I'd love to talk with you about like, your journey into wellness and into mindfulness, because I do know that you also have a history with organizing as well. Could you talk a little more about that? Yes. So I, um, I grew up in the Sikh tradition, which is a religion from, from India and it's very spiritual religion. Um, and when I was studying fashion, I used to actually work in fashion in London. Um, I was strengthening my practice and I realized that I really needed a new framework to help me make sense of my experience. And I started exploring and just reading more and I came across Buddhism. And um, the reason that I really began to dive deep into Buddhist contemplative practice was because one of the, the that, well, the very first teaching that the Buddha mentioned when he became enlightened to the disciples that he interacted with was that the way we experience life is suffering. And that felt, it felt like a relief to have my experience validated. I think growing up in a very dogmatic household, it was always sort of like, well, you're not doing something wrong or, or right. And you have to pray more for God and you need to strengthen your relationship with God. And I was like, okay, who is this? 
figure that is supposed to just magically solve my problems. And if this is the case, then why do I still feel awful every day? I'm confused at the sort of the disconnect. And the Buddhist framework very much emphasizes the autonomy of your own mind and basically argues that the suffering that you create, that you experience is self-created. You produce the suffering that you experience. Um, I understand today if one was to just blanket, you know, offer this teaching in a very blanket way. It has many implications because, um, as we know, it's much more nuanced than that. But basically what the Buddha was saying is that you have autonomy in the way that you experience your life. And if you're suffering, you can do something about that. So he laid out a formula, which is um, eight noble truths. It's just eight essential components of what it means to conduct yourself well and live a joyful life. And um, I just, I, I, re- I truly resonated with that. And I started diving deep into Buddhist practice. And when I moved to New York, I, I would go to classes and centers. And again, and again, and again, I would come across Tibetan teachers and realize that, okay, there's something specifically in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition that is really resonating with me and that feels like home. Um, so I continued to explore that and continued to deepen my practice. And then when I was working in this boutique in Brooklyn, um, I've always struggled with the disconnect of contemplative practice and just the practical action of day-to-day life. And I came from, you know, an inner city and my parents really struggled a lot financially. And it was a very, and a very disrupted childhood in, in many ways. So when I was, um, really studying this and beginning to learn how to teach this, I thought, well, it's, I found it ironic that so many of the individuals and communities that could greatly benefit from having a way to find relief and a way to just at least ground in their experience couldn't access this because of price point or just intimidation of the the doctrine. It's so, you know, it's so confusing. And, um, I, I just felt called to continue to really share these practices. So I was, I began teaching in women's transitional shelters across the city and then in all girls high schools. Um, I have two younger sisters too. So I felt really called to just that intersection of having to navigate so much when you're at such a young age and you're a young woman figuring yourself out, you're 15, 16 years old, and um, it's an incredibly diverse community. So having to navigate multiple identities and then really accomplish these metrics that have been laid out for you. And I wish that I would have had somebody in a middle school, high school, tell me that I don't have to be at war with myself to be successful. Whereas that's the only thing that I saw around me. So I think that was my one message. If I could leave them with anything, it's that you don't have to fight who you are. You don't have to be in conflict with who you are to live a life that is joyful, successful, appropriate, whatever. So I just continued teaching. And that was where a lot of the organization work came in and really organizing spaces and events. And um, I just really realized very quickly that in order for me to be of benefit in the way that I wanted to, it was imperative that I had a more trauma-informed and psychologically informed perspective like just meditation wasn't enough and i love contemplative practice i think they have tremendous potential flourishing it's not the medicine for trauma and i'm so vocal about this because i think there's been so much miscommunication about these practices and a lot of the negative findings aren't published a lot of 
their researchers can be biased, a lot of people don't have the proper guidance to implement them, and the context in which these practices were initially developed were very different. It was usually only men practicing this. They left their families. They had no other responsibility. They didn't have to work. They had everything taken care of. They would go to the local village and their food was given to them. So navigating now what so many people in the modern world are navigating and trying to produce the same result that those monks are producing, I just think is unrealistic. And it's going to have to be, we're going to have to adapt in order to understand what the new idea of what it means to be spiritual in the 21st century means. So I decided from that intersection to really go back to school to merge the two. So right now I'm on my way to becoming a therapist um, and continuing to deepen my own Buddhist training and practice to find a common ground that is fruitful, yes, but safe. Um, and, and just um, sincere, just a more honest way of being in relationship to one's practice and oneself today. That is so beautiful. The idea of having a reckoning of where we are culturally in this moment and also taking the fruits of Tibetan Buddhism and what we can learn and what we can implement while also having a trauma-informed practice. I think that's so mindful. Absolutely. So you've shared how your experiences with you know, organizing in, in your own community were really fueled by your, like you said, you have younger sisters and something that really stuck with me when you said is you don't have to be at war with yourself to be successful. How do you think that trauma-informed mindfulness can help bring that idea across? I think that um, I think that's a really excellent question, and um, mindfulness is a practice that extends beyond the realm of just compassionate acceptance. So it does very much entail having to accept everything that you're experiencing in the moment, um, but it's it's a liberating practice. It's a practice that is inherently practical. And it's a practice that is um, very much discerning. So this idea that we ought to release judgment is a little bit uh, oversimplified because the wholesome judgment is essential to understanding what actions we want to strengthen and states of mind we want to strengthen and which actions and states of mind we want to diminish. So being able to discriminate between the two and being able to discern between what is actually going to produce more joy, not just for me, but for everybody else involved, and what is actually going to produce more suffering. And then being able to choose accordingly is really important. So I think trauma-informed mindfulness can give people the opportunity to decide for themselves what it means to live a good life and how they want to go about doing that because this degree of insight into your own mind, into your own body offers you permission 
into what feels soothing and what feels compassionate and what feels nurturing to you. And like we spoke about just a few minutes ago, it will look and feel different for different people. But as long as you know yourself intimately and you know what's best for you, then there becomes a point and a sort of inner confidence that radiates from your own experience and your own practice where you're not seeking the approval of other people. You understand what is essential for you to feel good and take care of yourself, and that's enough. So trauma-informed mindfulness is a way of removing the need to blindly accept our circumstances by being honest about where we are and accepting this is the truth right now, and then learning how to be compassionately proactive about moving forward in a way that can lead to more joy and peace. So sounds very theoretical, but in fact, mindfulness is very practical, which is one of my favorite things about it. I love that. It's so you, what you described is so centered on the power of the individual experience. And I also wonder what that looks like when you start bringing it into community spaces, you know, because let's say you and I were in community together to make it a bit more practical. Um, maybe we're in a family or we depend on each other for resources or um, we go to the same community garden every week, whatever that looks mm-hmm. like. And for me, success looks like success looks like waking up to the sun every morning. And for you, success means being a night owl. How do we take those two strong separate truths mm-hmm. of who we are mm-hmm. and be in community with one another, respecting one another's differences while also being incredibly true to what we need. Mm. I, I think that what comes to mind for me as you ask this question is that it's really key to ask what is most important in the situation. So that that will change. So if my intention at one stage in my life is to cultivate community, my intention is to cultivate community and the aspiration is to belong in community, to respect other people, to be respected by others, to feel like I'm part of something larger than myself, then my priorities will naturally shift to adapt to that goal at hand. So if it is that I'm a night owl and you love to wake up in the morning, then it's just wise to negotiate. It's just wisdom to compromise for the larger goal at hand. If I'm in a state where I'm like, I really can't gain access to myself. I'm not taking care of myself. I don't feel stable in myself. I I really have not been taking care of myself. That's when I have to be honest. What is the goal at hand? And it's like, I have to take care of my needs and I'm not in a position to be flexible in that right now. And if that means that I have to just focus on this for a short amount of time, I can do that. So mindfulness is wisdom, but it's wisdom for the greater good. So basically what it's saying is that even in the short term, if you and I both decide that right now, being in community in the way that we want isn't possible because we have to prioritize our own needs first. We both understand that it's for the greater good of coming back into community again, of being able to come into contact again. It, because if we don't take care of ourselves, it's not sustainable to be in community. It will just end up in projection and resentment and we'll lose ourselves. But I really think, and this goes beyond Buddhism, this is sort of like one of the primary goals of 
any healing modality ever is to be able to have a strong, stable sense of self and to feel both individuated and connected at the same time. So I am someone's girlfriend. I am someone's daughter. I am someone's sister. I am someone's friend. I am I. I am both. So this idea to hold the nuance of both is really where we come back to this idea of a balancing act. In any given moment, in any given stage, the priorities will just shift. And being able to be flexible with that is wisdom. Trying to be rigid and trying to maintain the status quo is where we get stuck because life is constantly adapting. We're constantly adapting and we have to move with that. I love this approach because it... It's like some nice healing solve to the idea of disposability. That if we feel harmed by our engagement with someone in our community or we feel misunderstood or our needs and missions aren't aligning, rather than tossing someone off to the wind and saying that you are not useful, that you are not important, it adjusts the framework so that it's not about value because everyone is valuable it's mm-hmm. about this isn't working right now. Let's mm-hmm. reassess. Let's heal ourselves with mm-hmm. the eventual goal of returning to be in community with one another. Exactly. And and that's that's realistic. And that's what it means to heal, right? Because we've all been on both ends of having to be the one to initiate that departure for some time or being on the receiving end of, of being of being departed. And the key is that anything can adapt and anything can change and we can all evolve and we might need to dedicate time to really restore that stability within ourselves so that we can show up in more wholesome ways. And if both parties, and this is a key, if both parties, again, are willing to do that, then how else can you define love? What else is there to love than two people willing to take responsibility for what's going on? What a beautiful balancing act. Mm. Challenging, but beautiful. (laughs) Garrett, can you share one practice that's helping you discover who you are? This might sound crazy, but eating right now food food is huge right now in terms of um it's like deep medicinal benefits um of noticing where the the control mind wants to come in and wants to organize my experience of noticing where the uncontrolled mind wants to come in and take over of noticing where the nurturing mind wants to come in of just noticing the conditioning that I've had around such uh, an incredibly medicinal and joyful act and um, food right now for me, whether it's cooking, whether it's reading about it, whether it's eating. And I'm in, I think one of the best cities in the world to enjoy food. Um, I feel so lucky. It's just been, it's an act of grace. It's an act of gratitude. It's an act of love to have somebody to go somewhere where someone is so excited to make this, craft and to share their craft with you and to just delight over it nothing for no reason but for the sake of delighting over it and I think going back to my initial intention on really restoring joy and pleasure and delight food has just been 
the practice of enjoying my food and being in relationship to everybody who had made this possible has just helped me both strengthen my interconnectedness and also allowed me to just experience more moments of pleasure. I could talk all day about food. (laughs) I could talk all day about food and my understanding of what it means to eat for pleasure and eat for health and eat from fear and eat from boredom. Mm -hmm. Um, Food has been a very spiritual journey for me as well. Actually, one of the books that we spoke about in our Not Yet community recently was Janine Roth's Women, Food, and God. And Mm. have you read this book? No. It's just a good, it's a juicy title, right? Are you kidding me? Women, Food, and God? Yes. (laughs) And the thesis is that your relationship with food mirrors your relationship with the divine. Mm. Oh. Yeah. Um, I'll have to send it to you. (laughs) Please. Uh, Thank you so much. Kirit, this has been an absolute pleasure, like a luxurious, like warm, insightful conversation. Mm, Thank you. Thank you for having me on here. And thank you for holding space so beautifully and for your lovely questions and just being in your presence, even if it is virtually, it's been such a, such a delight. Can you share what you're building right now and where the Not Yet community can find you online? Yes. So currently I'm actually working on um, very, very early stages, um, a, a literature piece. I'm not sure if it will be a series of short essays or stories or a long essay or even a novel. I'm really just exploring, but I'm working on creating something and crafting a piece around language on what it means to be well. So I'm really excited to to throw myself into this project. It's been a long time coming. Um, and then I'm also working on continuing to see clients one-on-one and teaching community classes. So every Thursday I have a free community class at um, 6.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So anyone can just message me for the Zoom link. It's also online. Um, so those are always open to everybody and anybody. Um, And to find me, you can either find me on Instagram or my website where you can email me through my website. And I'm always happy to chat and to hear your reflections and just to be in conversation around these topics. So please feel free to reach out if it resonates. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Not Yet. The podcast is hosted by me, Paige Polk, and produced by Paige Polk International. The show art is made by Elizabeth Olguin and the music is by Elder. Don't forget to subscribe here. And if you want more of this love in your life, visit notyetseries.com to join the Not Yet Project and community. I'll see you next week.